Exodus chapter 6. That's where we're going to be in Exodus chapter 6 <coughs> as we continue through our study um, through the book of Exodus. I'll give you a minute to get there. Uh, we're actually going to be, uh, we'll be part, we'll starting in the middle of the chapter, verse 14 is where we're going to, what we'll be picking up. But when we ended last, last week, we stopped in the middle of this chapter the middle of Exodus chapter 6, and we stopped at verse 13. And in verse 13, this is where God had um, once again commanded Moses to go back to Pharaoh and to tell him this specific thing, let the children of Israel go, let them leave his land. And we know that God had told Moses to go back and repeat this message because Pharaoh had resisted God's demand the first time Moses and Aaron had been sent. In fact, we know that Pharaoh not only resisted, but he responded with spite. And um, he sought to make life even more difficult for the Hebrew people. And um, when the officers of the children of Israel um, weren't treated favorably because of the harsher conditions, um, we know that they went to Pharaoh and um, asked why it was that Pharaoh was now dealing with them in this way and why things had changed. And, of course, Pharaoh used that as an opportunity to blame Moses for the new troubles. And if you remember, uh, Pharaoh accused them of being idle, of not having enough work to do, and commanded them to get back to work. And so consequently, the Hebrew people, they turned against Moses. And um, as you could imagine, um, if you were in Moses' shoes, Moses was discouraged. He was discouraged, and um, this caused him, he did the right thing in his discouragement. He went back to the Lord that's what we, where we ended up last week in this conversation where, where Moses was speaking to the Lord. And he had asked God why. He said, why have you allowed for Pharaoh to continue to do evil against his people? And why have you not delivered them like you said you would? For the very reason for why you had sent me back to Egypt. And, and, and what we've seen was that rather than God directly answering Moses' questions, and sometimes God does that for me, I don't know if he does that for you. I go to, go to God in situations that I don't quite understand or when, when things aren't going my way. And I, I, I ask God, why? Why have you done this? Why are you allowing this? And more times than not, I don't get a direct answer to my question. Rather, God does for me what he did for Moses. And what he did for Moses is God simply reminded Moses, first of all, of who he was. Moses, remember who I am. I'm the Lord. I am the great I am, the self-sufficient one, the almighty one. Nothing is out of my control. This is part of the plan. And in reminding Moses of who he was, he also reminded Moses of what he had promised to do. Remember, Moses, what I had promised to do. Remember what I told you would, what would happen. And then after reminding Moses of these two things, he then com commanded him to go back. Go back to Pharaoh with the same message. Let my people go. Now, as we continue on through chapter 6 this morning and pick back up in verse 14, what you'll notice there is there's a genealogy, a genealogical record, an account um, for Moses and, and Moses and Aaron. And, and um, it takes us down through some of the sons of, of uh, Jacob, and it gets to the... the um, the son of Levi, and then from there, from Levi, it begins to mention Levi's descendants, and it tracks it all the way down to Moses and Aaron, who, who were Levite's descendants of, of Levi. And <clears throat> as you follow the context of this, what, what I don't know about you, but what you might begin to notice is, is this appears to be out of place, because it's, it seems to be an interruption. It seems to interrupt this account between Moses's, or this account about Moses' interactions with Pharaoh. It's, it's like right in the middle of, of our story. However, when we look at it in light of Moses' discouragement, remember the place where Moses was at, and then in light of God telling Moses to go back to Pharaoh, we can see that it's here for a specific reason. We're, we see that it's here in order to remind us of something very important. And what it reminds us of, when you look at it in the context of the, the account and the story and seeing it really as, a, as, as something being interjected at this point, what we see is, is that God's reminding us of how he had chose Moses. How he had appointed Moses and Aaron for their ministry in Egypt even before they were born. 
he knew. In other words, their arrival into Jacob's family at this specific time, it was preordained by God, and it was in accordance to his perfect plan. And this specific truth about how God operates in this way, even still today in our own lives, it was spoken to the prophet Jeremiah this way that God operates. When God had said to Jeremiah, when he called him in Jeremiah 1, verse 5, he said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were sanctified, in other words, before I set you apart and I ordained you as a prophet to the nations, all while he was still in the womb, while he was still just a thought, God conceived this. God set it forth. And we consider this truth in regards to our own lives. It should remind us again this morning that God has a plan for our lives. God has a plan for your life, a divine purpose. And whatever God calls us to do, whatever God purposes us to do, we can rest assured that he will enable us, that he will enable us and he will equip us just like he did for Moses. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was writing about in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, when he said this. He said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And, and, and this same message is what God had been communicating to Moses at the beginning of chapter 6, when, when Moses first came to God and said, why have you allowed for this? But this was the thing that God had communicated to him, that I have a plan, that there's things that I've appointed for you to walk in, promises that I will fulfill through you. And God made this known to Moses, if you remember, in the beginning of chapter 6 with those, with those seven I will statements where God said, I will, Moses, I will do this, and I will do this. Promises that God had told Moses ultimately to go back and to deliver to the children of Israel, the very ones who had lost faith in him because of the circumstances becoming unfavorable to them. And with these words that God had promised to do and with the command to go back to Pharaoh and to restate this, this command or this demand from God to let his people go, we read of Moses' response here at the end of verse 6. And in verse 28, if you'll follow along with me, I'm not going to read through the genealogy. It's too many hard-to-pronounce names. <laughs> but you get the point. And in verse 28, it says, And it came to pass on the day that the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Then in chapter 7, verse 1, it says, So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. And you shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron your brother shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of his land. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and multiply signs and my wonders, in the land of Egypt. But Pharaoh will not heed, verse 4, he will not heed you so that, that I may lay my hand on Egypt and bring my armies and my people and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by my great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Then Moses and Aaron did so. Just as the Lord had commanded them, so they did. And Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, verse 8, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, when, when, when Pharaoh speaks to you, saying, Show a miracle for yourselves, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and let it become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so, just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before a servant, and it became a serpent. But Pharaoh also called all the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians in Egypt of Egypt, and they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For every man threw down his rod, and they became serpents. But Pharaoh's rod swallowed up their rods, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And that verse 13, as you guys know, is going to be repeated over and over again through these next few chapters as we see 
Pharaoh's response to these things that God did as God was revealing himself to him. So verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning and when he goes out to the water and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him and the rod which was turned into the serpent, you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are on the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, and the river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the water of the river. Then, verse 19, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand, over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over the rivers of their ponds, and over all the pools of water that they may become blood. And there they shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the buckets of wood and in the pitchers of stone. In other words, in the stored up water as well. And Moses and Aaron did so. Just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank, and the river could not drink, and the Egyptians could not drink wa- the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all of the land of Egypt. Then, here comes these guys again, right? These sorcerers, the magicians of Egypt, did with their enchantments, did so with their inf- enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard. <coughs> and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray, God, that you would give us insight through your Holy Spirit. I pray, God, that we would check our own hearts to see these areas where we may have resisted you, where we in our own lives have hardened our hearts towards you. God, whether it be through sin and the callousness of sin or, Lord, as a result of our own will to do things our own way, I pray, God, that um, we would read and hear and heed the warnings and heed the example of Moses, God, or of, of, of Pharaoh, so that we too, Lord, um, wouldn't grow cold, that our hearts wouldn't grow cold towards you. Lord, if there is this place of hardness or coldness in our hearts. I pray, God, that you would breathe new life back into that. God, that we would be fired up to live for you, to serve you, to know you more. God, that you would be glorified through our lives. That the, 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 the sin that we're tempted by and the temptations of this world, Lord, that they would um, fade away as we focus on you and your goodness and your love for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you want to jump back to, to verse 28, I want to, I want to address these last two verses and as it transitions into chapter 7 before we move on. And, and um, what we know is that up to this point, if you were here last week and the week before, is that Moses and Aaron, when they first had come before, before Pharaoh, they had simply just delivered God's ultimatum. Remember, let my people go or else was, was, was pretty much the message that God was was giving to Pharaoh when he first sent Moses and Aram to them. And because Pharaoh had refused God's command, what we see is, is that things had changed. And then we're going to notice that there's a progression, and I'm going to highlight that as we go through this, that, that God just didn't come in and wipe out all the Egyptians and, and take Pharaoh off of his throne. God was doing more than, than just one thing through this process. And, and, and because Pharaoh had resisted, and even um, reviled God's people as a result and retaliated against them as a result of what had happened. What God is saying now is that the time had come for Moses and Aaron to reveal God's power and to perform the miraculous signs that were proof that they were truly sent by him. Remember, Pharaoh had declared, who is this God, this God of the Hebrew people? He says, I don't know him. But in light of these words... Um, that, that God was speaking to Moses. In the light of the words that God had um, 
commanded Moses to go back with, we see that Moses spoke in verse 30, and as a result of those words there, it's pretty obvious that he was still discouraged. He was still afraid of going back and facing Pharaoh and even the Hebrew people as he maintained this same um, uh, argument that he had made from the beginning when God first called him there when he was in the land of Midian there at the, the burning bush, that he wasn't qualified, that he wasn't an eloquent speaker, that he didn't have the ability to communicate very well, that he was, he was stammering in his lips. And so what we see here is, is, is Moses maintains this um, complaint, if you will, uh, against God's will, we see that God reminded Moses, again, verse in chapter 7, verse 1, that, that Aaron could be his spokesman, that God had relented this. And so even though God was sending Moses back, he's, he's telling him, you can go back with Aaron. You don't have to do, this, to do this on your own. But Moses still had to go. Moses still had to go to Pharaoh, and he still had to speak the words of God to Aaron, his brother, who would then repeat what Moses had said to him. I don't know about you, but when we stop and think about how this must have taken place as Moses and Aaron stood there before, before Pharaoh um, and, and went through this process of, of really an alternate to God's plan, I think that in, it, it seems a little silly, in my mind at least. And in my mind, I see these two aged men, we're told 80 and 83, we see these two aged and, and, and wisely looking men standing side by side. And I picture them first just below Pharaoh's throne in his court where Pharaoh was seated. And when the time came for Moses to be able to speak and finally once again declare these demands or commands of God, I picture Moses just kind of sheepishly leaning over and, 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 and whispering in Aaron's ear, rather than, than raising his head and proudly speaking the words of God, let my people go. And perhaps as Moses was whispering, Pharaoh even had to scoot to the, to the edge of his throne and maybe even cup his hand behind his ear as he attempted to try to hear the words that, that, that Moses was whispering. But because Pharaoh couldn't discern the, word, the whispers that, that Moses was uttering, I see, him, I see him in my mind rising to his feet and with a loud voice demanding to know what Moses had just said to his brother. And perhaps this caused Aaron to even hesitate and to offer an explanation for his younger brother's whispers before he spoke the words that God had spoken to Moses, that Moses had spoken to Aaron, and that Aaron then spoke to Pharaoh. And I personally imagine that it happened something like this because it reminds me of the fact that, that Aaron speaking as Moses' prophet, as, as we read here, as, as God said, this is how, how it can be, that, that this, this was not part of God's original plan. It's not how God had designed it. Furthermore, it reminds me of how foolish it is, how foolish it is to try and modify one of God's plans, something I think that we all do often where God's encouraged us and, 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 and put us on a path and said, go this way, do it this way. And yet we, we alternate it. We, we add something or we take away from it. We modify it to, to maybe fit us or what we think is better. But it's silly. It's foolishness. And such was the case here as well. Not only how foolish it was for, 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 for Aaron and Moses to to modify God's plan, but also how foolish it, 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 it is for them and for us to be unwilling to speak God's words of truth to someone that God has asked us to go to. And I think that there's even um, there's such great pressure in our society today for Christians, for believers, for those of us who know the truth of what God's word says, there's such a pressure for us to be silent. And we can come up with all kinds of excuses and all kinds of reasons for why we remain silent rather than going forth and speaking the truth into this world that's full of darkness as the word's supposed to go forth as light. 
things that God's called us to do. But in preparing Moses and Aaron for this return visit, we see that God, in verse 3, if you look there, that he told him that he was going to have to multiply his signs and his wonders in the land of Egypt. And, And in this, what we see is God was again telling Moses and Aaron something that he had already told them in many different other ways, but he was telling him, that, that he was making it known to him that Pharaoh was still going to resist. Even though they would go and perform miracles and, and wonders before Pharaoh, that Pharaoh was still going to resist. And that it would take more than one or even two miracles to accomplish his purposes. That God would have to multiply them. That there would be more than just a couple. And as we, as we prepare, I think, to enter in, as this, this chapter and this section really opens the door um, for what follows, as we, as we prepare to study these, these, these series, if you will, of, of, of miracles, I think it's important for us to focus again on the reason for why God took this approach. Why did God do this? What was, what was the purpose behind the multiplying of the signs and wonders in regards to dealing with Pharaoh and sending these judgments into the land of Egypt. And, and we know, because we know the end of the story, that the ultimate purpose was to bring Pharaoh and the Egyptians to their knees so they would let the Hebrew people leave the land, right? That's why Moses was called, to be a deliverer, to set God's people to go. That was the demand, let my people go. But we need to keep in mind that God was also revealing himself to the Egyptians, Right? He's also revealing himself to the Egyptians and proving that he alone is God. And this is what God was declaring in verse 5, if you see there, when he said, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. How? When I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So it was more than just setting the Hebrew people free. That was more... There was more purpose to what God was doing than that. God desired for the Egyptians as well as Pharaoh to know who he was. Another thing to consider is the fact that these miracles and the and, and miracles and the plagues that God would bring against Egypt was the means by which he would judge the gods of Egypt. Each, each plague was, was intentional. It was specific. And in doing so, God would not only judge the gods of Egypt, but he would prove that the Egyptian gods were false and, and, and useless. Nothing more than, than, than wood and metal as regards to an idol in which it's made by man's hands. In fact, in chapter 12, verse 12, God would declare this in the book of Exodus. He would say, against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. So in proving himself to be the only God, God was also proving the fact that all of the other gods that the Egyptians worshipped were false gods, worthless. And when you study ancient Egyptian history, you'll find out that at this time they worshipped more than 80 different gods. But none of them, none of these gods could deliver them or their land from the judgments that God would send. They were powerless. So God desired to free his people. And he desired to teach the Egyptians and Pharaoh that he alone was the the one and true and living God. But one other thing of importance that was going on here that we need to take notice of. In addition to these things, what we'll come to see is that the children of Israel, God's own people at this point, needed to learn this lesson of who God is. And according to Ezekiel chapter 20, who, who accounts this time, The prophet recalls that many of these Jews, many of the Hebrew people at this time were also worshiping the gods of Egypt. In fact, um, when they were finally set free, and this is mind-blowing to me, but when they were finally set free from Egypt, once they were really delivered and even, even went across dry land through the Red Sea, is that many of them were told, Ezekiel said, took their idols with them even after seeing the mighty displays of God's power and of God's judgment. Because, Ezekiel said, or because, actually the psalmist in Psalm 106, verse 7, it says this, they did this because they did not understand God's wonders, nor did they remember the multitude of his mercies. Understanding and remembrance. And those are two key things in all believers' lives, including ours. Guys, because the truth is, 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 
Things from our past or even things that we come into today that are of this world have this tendency to creep back into our lives or take a place in position above God that that it has no right of doing. An idol. Why? Because we don't understand and we don't remember. And we cling to these things and we, we, we allow for something that has no power, something that has no might, to take the place and the affections that only God should have in our lives. Now as we move on and get to the the heart of this story and see this encounter between Moses and Pharaoh, if you look to verse 8, what we see is that one of the first things we're told about, one of the first signs that Moses and Aaron performed before before Moses was this Aaron's rod being turned into a serpent, right? Right? And God had given this sign back in the land of Midian when Moses was standing before the burning bush. God had told him to cast his his rod down and said that this will be a sign for you to the people, specifically to the elders of Israel, in that, that Moses had stated to God that they wouldn't believe him. And so we know that this has already been done once there in Midian and, and, and once before the children of Israel, and, and we see that God was, was calling them to go back to this, this, this miraculous thing that God had done in order to, to um, now do it before Pharaoh. But as, as, as Aaron was the one performing this sign in Pharaoh's place, the significance of what took place here is understood or it's revealed to us um, when we understand um, um, a little bit more about the serpent that it was changed into, particularly the, 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 the position that the serpent held in the, the Egyptian culture, specifically the cobra. And, and it doesn't say exactly that this was the serpent that, that it changed into, and when you go and study it out in the Hebrew, the language, it doesn't give any indications, any indications to, to a particular kind of snake uh, or, or one or the other, but what we know is, is that the serpent in the Hebrew culture was um, seen to be a symbol of immortality. It was viewed to be a symbol of immortality. And because Pharaoh was considered to be and was worshipped as a god, what we know is the serpent, particularly the cobra, was, was um, the symbol of mortality was always displayed on the front of Pharaoh's crown or on his royal headdress. And if you've ever seen any ancient um, Egyptian, Egyptian antiquities, whether a crown or one of the headdress or one of the facial coverings of those mummies, those ancient kings, you'll always notice there was a serpent there on the front of it. And it was always a connection to, to immortality. And so when Aaron's rod was cast down, right, and it, and it became a serpent by the power of God and then ate up the other serpents that the sorcerers had produced, we see that God was communicating by this action a very powerful message. He was communicating a message that demonstrated how he alone was the immortal God. Not Pharaoh, but God. And only he, God, possesses immortality in this sense as an original, eternal, and necessary, necessary endowment. Meaning, meaning um, the immortality of our souls, of man's souls, is, is given only by our God. And, and truly, it's contingent only upon His will. The one true and living God. The immortal God. The all-existent one. The self-existent one. In other words, no man can gain more immortality by his own power. Instead, God must grant it to him. And, and, and our God, we know, promises to give immortality to those who believe in him in the form of eternal life. To whosoever, the Bible says, to whosoever would believe in him. But to those who don't, those like Pharaoh, they will be separated from God forever and they'll suffer. But the Bible says eternal punishment and even torment as a result of not being with God who gives life, who gives immortality. See, this was the message of the first sign. This was a message of the first sign. And if we do not start with this foundational understanding of God that sets Him apart and above from everything else, then we'll, re- then we'll never really ever truly come to know Him if we don't see Him as the immortal one, the self-existent one. 
You see, Pharaoh believed, and the people believed that Pharaoh was this guy. That Pharaoh was God. They worshipped him as God, as an immortal God. But the Lord took this delusion off of the table to begin with, right from the very beginning, and said, no, it's me. Sadly, Pharaoh never came to understand who God was. He never came to know God. And, And in this instance, we see that the process that Pharaoh set his feet to is first established in these verses where where Pharaoh quickly dismissed the significance of what he had seen simply because his sorcerers could make their rods also become serpents, right? Through their enchantments, we're told. And then when we consider the staff turning into serpent alongside what we'll read a little bit later, um, this water being turned into blood and then into next week's into the chapter where we read about the invasion of frogs, what we'll see is, and that's in chapter is, we'll see that, that the, the, the magicians or the sorcerers were able to duplicate each one of these things, right? They were able to duplicate each one of them. And some commentators want to point this out. They suggest that this was done by pure magic, by like sleight of hand magic. Well, other commentators suggest that they were empowered by Satan, that they were able to manifest um, satanic powers and to do what Moses and, and Aaron had done. And what we see here is a battle between the power of God, really, and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the power of Satan being both manifested. But whatever the, their case may be, whether it was just um, sleight of hand magic or actual uh, manifestations of satanic power, what we see here is this, is that, is that um, these guys were nothing more than counterfeits. In either instance, they were nothing more than a counterfeit. They were counterfeits who opposed God, and their deceptions or lying wonders, whatever you want to reckon them to be, they had their limitations. They could only do certain things. And this was something that the Apostle Paul, when we look to the New Testament, this was something that the Apostle Paul wrote about. And he mentioned even these Egyptian sorcerers, a few, a couple of them by name in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And in doing so, when Paul did this, he mentioned what he said. He said that in the last days, Satan will attack God's truth. In the last days, Satan will attack God's people by opposing, the, by opposing the truth. And here's where it comes into play today, by imitating the, the, the works of God. He said, just like Jannes and Jambres did who opposed Moses. And when we consider that Satan is working in these last days, like he did here in Pharaoh's presence, in counterfeit ways to oppose God and to oppose God's people... Don't you think that's something we should be aware of? It should. We're living in these last days. A day when a time when Satan is, is roaming to and fro throughout the earth, seeking to destroy whom he may, to deceive, to act as a counterfeit. And, and truthfully, when I study God's word and I see how Satan does this, it's more affirmation to me, to us guys, that we are living in these last days, that the Lord's return is near. Because what we're told in Scripture about Satan in regards to his counterfeiting in, the, in his last days is that there are specific things that he's going to do, specific ways that he's going to oppose God. The first is in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Because in Galatians chapter 6, or Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, we're told that Satan has put forth another gospel. Paul says, not that there's another There's only one, but he says it's an imitation. It's a counterfeit to the truth. Matter of fact, he says it's a perversion of the truth that simply proclaims that salvation is something other than grace through faith. He says that it's not by grace through faith. And we know that today that there are all kinds of different perversions of the gospel out there where many people and many false religions have risen up and said that that the good news message is this. That it's grace plus this, or, or something completely um, um, alternate to the truth, a perversion of the truth, of the, of the very good news message that Jesus came to give. Likewise, Satan, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, he, he, he pointed out that Satan has counterfeit ministers. At one point, he says that they disguise themselves as, as angels of light, right? Ministers of darkness. 
But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul calls these false teachers, that he says that they disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness who go about speaking lies. False teachers. And, and, and you have but only, um, uh, for the most part, not all of it, but you only have as far to go to some of these TV evangelists, not all of them, but most of them, who fit this description, counterfeits, imposters, false teachers who appear or present themselves as ministers of righteousness and go about speaking lies. They're just like the sorcerers that we're reading about here. They're opposed to God, and they're opposed to the truth of God and God's will. And furthermore, we know we have not seen this yet, and I don't believe that we as, as believers will see this day, but we're looking <coughs> forward to the time when Christ will return, and then we know that this will take place. But we know from passages like 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that Satan will even one day go as far to bring in a counterfeit Christ. And, uh, uh, the Antichrist, the Bible says. One who will rise up and, it says, deceive the whole world. A counterfeit. And this is the way that Satan's working today. And we should be aware of it so that we don't fall prey to these deceptions. So that we don't turn away from the glory, the, the, the works of God, the manifestations of God, and in turn, our hearts grow hard. The point is, is Satan opposes God's work by imitating it. And in this way, he, tried to minim- he tries to minimize the power and the glory of God, the revealed nature of God. And this is what Pharaoh was attempting to do with his sorcerers. He was trying to, to shroud who God was as God was trying to manifest himself to Pharaoh, the Egyptian people, and to the children of Israel. And this is what God does today. Consequently, Pharaoh's heart, if you look there, according to verse 13, what did it do? It grew hard, and he did not heed Moses and Aaron. If you look to verse 14 as we continue on, it says, it says verse 14, chapter 7, it says that, so the Lord said to Moses, okay, this is God's response to what had just taken place. He says, so the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard, he refuses to let the people go. And again, the command, go again or go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water. And now begins this multiplying of the signs and wonders. And he says, You shall stand by the river's edge to the bank, at the bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned into a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river, in the rod that is my hand, and they shall be turned into blood. So, <clears throat> we see when Pharaoh hardened his heart, we see that God's response, which, which I see, and, and I'll get to it a little bit further, but I see even at this point, God's grace. I see God's mercy. Even in the midst of these judgments that are being poured out, I see God's grace and God's mercy. And I want to get to that, but I want to reiterate that, that this is part of it because so many people who, who, who are in the world today who are hard-hearted against God, that resist God's will for their lives, um, don't want to acknowledge the fact that God's a gracious God, that God's a merciful God, that God's a loving God. And, and, and in their unwillingness to acknowledge that, they, 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 they accuse God of just being an evil dictator, if you will, one who goes around killing people and throwing plagues upon them, and, 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 and disrupting people's life for his own humor or for whatever. And they do that because they go, that in, in some sense, they then justify why they don't submit their lives to that kind of God. The God, they say, of the Old Testament, right? But even in this, in this story, even in this account, it, it, we see God's long-suffering nature, which is, a, which is a picture, which is a manifestation of God's grace, God's mercy, and God's kindness, and I'll get to that in a minute, but, but we know that this particular, this particular plague, this, this first plague of turning the waters of the Nile into the blood, were really one of ten. One of ten that God would bring against Pharaoh and the Egyptian people. The last of which was the death of the firstborn son, and this ultimately would lead to the departure of the children of Israel from Egypt. And to further make my point about this being an act of grace, this process being an act of grace and mercy... What was holding God back from this very moment of going, okay, 
Let's get to the chase. You know, let my people go. I'm going to kill all your firstborn sons. What was holding God back from doing that? Nothing other than the fact that the Bible tells us in the book of Ezekiel that God's judgment, God's wrath, is his strange work. Meaning, meaning God's desire is for that no man to perish, right? But that all would repent and all that would be saved. And such was the case even for Pharaoh, as God was giving him opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to turn to him, to know him, to serve him, to love him. And this would be first of one of ten that God would bring against Pharaoh. And, and um, I want to point out that this word plague, I want to I ident- I define it a little bit for you. It's, it's not even used until chapter 9, the word plague. It's always referred to up to this point as signs and wonders, things that God was doing. And, 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 and it wasn't even described or defined until chapter 9, verse 14, as a, as, 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 as a plague and it's in, or as plagues. And, and, and that word was then used to describe the works, the works of God that he is doing now and would continue to do. And in this, this, this word plague is the Hebrew word magapha. And um, it means this. It means to blow or to strike. And the idea behind that is, is, is one who is engaged in a battle will raise their hand, clench them, and reach out to, to strike. It gives this idea of combat, of a battle, of a fight, to cast a blow or to cast a strike. And by this, as we see and we're told that God was going to stretch out his hand against the Hebrew people, against Pharaoh, we're told that God stretched out his hand and then he began to strike them. And in doing so, he was inflicting pain. Will God inflict pain into our own lives? Yes, he will. And for those who believe in him, for those of us who are called God's sons and God's daughters, we know that it's not a hand of judgment, but that it's a hand of discipline, right? The Bible tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves and that we're not to despise the chasing or the disciplining of the Lord, even though it might be painful, not not to despise it because what God's doing is he's bringing forth the fruit of righteousness into our lives through it. In the sense with Pharaoh, who was not yet a child of God, and, and we know that he would resist, this truly was a judgment. It was a blow or a strike to inflict pain. And we will see as we read on about, as we read about all ten of these blows, if you will, that came from God's hand, is, is, is that the longer Pharaoh resisted, the longer Pharaoh resisted God, the more serious the judgments became. In other words, the more painful it got. Has that ever happened to you? Or how about to your kids? The longer my kids resist my will, the more painful it can become for them, right? And, and again, we might chuckle in that, but it's really God works in our lives in a merciful way in this way. In fact, if we look at it, I think it's safe to say, as we l- l- group them and look at them together, these different, these different things that God was doing, these different plagues that God was bringing forth, <clears throat> I think it's safe to say that even though these, these first three plagues, the, 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 the water being turned into blood, the, the, the flood of frogs that will then come upon the land, and even the swarm of gnats that follow, that, that all of these plagues were something that was of great distress to the Egyptian people. But you know what? They were mild in comparison to the plagues that would follow. And the second set of plagues, the, three, the second set of three plagues, the flies and the death of the livestock and the boils that covered the bodies of the Egyptian people, they clearly brought a much greater suffering, an, increase, an increasing uh, of judgment that was seen through that. However, the last four plagues, the one of hail and fire that came down from the sky, the locusts swarmed and eat all of the vegetation on the earth, the darkness, and lastly, the death of the firstborn, they by far were the worst as, as they were beyond distress and discomfort and, and suffering as they really brought with them great destruction. And it's a reminder for us that, that Pharaoh, who, who set forth his heart to do things his own way and not God's way, that ultimately it's, he set his feet to a path of destruction. And for us in our own lives, when we harden our heart towards God, guys, and we go, no, I'm going to do it my way, not your way, God, ultimately the end's the same. 
There's distress, there's suffering, and there's a path that leads to destruction. The Bible tells us there's a way that seems right to man, but its end is death every time. You know, in light of this, we can, we can see that the longer a person resists God's will and, and hardens their heart and refuses to hear his word, really, guys, what we see here is, is that God begins to speak louder, a little louder, a little louder, a little louder, either with his hand of judgment or for us with his hand of discipline. But we must not forget that God's desire then for the Hebrew, for the Egyptians and, and for, for Pharaoh, God's desire then and God's desire now is for all of us to come to know him. And this is why he shows us these kinds. And I put it in this category. I think this is these words best describe what's taking place here and what God does in our lives in regards to his own discipline is that it's these, this, 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 it's, it's merciful restraint where God just doesn't go right to the place where the 10th plague is poured out and the sons of the firstborn are, are, are put to death. That God shows merciful restraint even when we resist or harden our hearts towards him. Now, in addition to the water of the Nile River being turned into blood, if you look there at the end of verse 19 is where we're at, it tells us that there were also waters in the land that other waters in the land were turned into, into blood as well. Water that had been stored in, in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. However, it's clear that this judgment was directed again at one of the, the Egyptians' gods. It was directed at specifically at the Nile River, and the god of the Nile River um, was the Egyptian god Hapai. And, and Hapai was believed to be the god of the Nile and, 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 and was so <coughs> because this god was also seen as one of the fertility gods. And, and he was worshipped in conjunction with the annual flooding of the Nile River. This flooding which provided life-getting water for the crops and, and also uh, life-giving fertile soil that would wash the soot into their, their um, farmlands and... Um, made ultimately Egypt an oasis in the middle of a desert, which it still is today. Why? Because of the Nile River. And, and I'm going to challenge you. There's, there's another prophecy. There's a prophecy in Scripture about uh, the Nile River in regards to the Lord's return, about it drying up. I challenge you to go find it and see what it says. And then go look on the Internet and see what's taking place with the Nile River right now, that God is working in a prophetic way to fulfill what he has said, which is going to be a judgment against Israel, which ultimately a judgment, or against Egypt, which is ultimately a judgment against the world before the Lord's return. But it is. Egypt is an oasis in the desert. It was then and it is now. So when God turned the Nile River into blood, he was once again sending a very powerful message and showing Pharaoh and the Egyptian people that he was greater than the Nile and greater than their god, Hapai. But more importantly, what he was showing to them through this, that he alone, guys, is that he alone was the one who had the power to sustain their crops and ultimately the power to sustain their lives. Now, according to verse 25, this plague and, its, um, and, 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 and the consequences that it brought forth, it lasted for seven days, according to verse 25. And during this time, the fish died. And as you can imagine... The river began to stink, and the people couldn't drink the water from the river. Not that they probably really wanted to at that point. But rather than acknowledge God, this is a sad thing, rather than acknowledge the God of the Hebrews as the one true God who gives life, right? The immortal one who gives life, and as the one true God who sustains life, Pharaoh's magicians with their enchantments also turned the water into blood. Consequently, when Pharaoh saw this, he, according to verse 23, was not moved. He was not moved by what God had done, and he did not heed God's command to let the Hebrew people go. Justin, if you guys want to come up, you can get ready. We're going to wrap it up this morning, not go any further into the next chapter. But <clears throat> one of the things I want to point out is God was not going to relent, was he? Just because Pharaoh said, um, I'm not even going to talk to you, Moses and Aaron. I'm just going to go back into my house at this point. See, my magicians can do the same thing. And then he walked back in, 
And, and what we know is, is that God was not going to relent even though Pharaoh's heart continued to grow hard. And even though Pharaoh's heart continued to grow hard, what we will see is that his resolve, his resolve to oppose God and resist God's demand to let his people go, his resolve gradually weakened, didn't, didn't it? Even next week when we get in chapter 8, we see that, that, that Pharaoh will cry out to Moses and Aaron to relent with what the judgment that God had brought forth. It wasn't a softening of his heart, but it was a real, it was a, um, a, uh, uh, his resolve was being weakened. And Pharaoh's hard-heartedness and weakened resolve, guys, it should be a warning to us. We don't want our resolve in opposition to the Lord to weaken in our heart to continue to grow hard. It should be a warning to us, an example for us to not harden our heart towards God or to God's will. God desires for us to have hearts that are soft in His hands. Hearts that are molded so that we can be transformed and conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. God's desire for His will to be brought forth into our life is an act of love. It's an act of kindness. And that's why this morning I think that we too should search our own heart and see if God's will is coming forth in our life just simply because our resolve has weakened or is it because our heart has softened? You see, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, Paul addresses this, and he actually warns us about this very same thing, and he says this. He says, See to it, brothers, that none of you have a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Again, see to it, brothers, verse 12, that, you, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But... Encourage one another daily, as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Let's pray. Father, there are many things in this world that seek to deceive us. You know that the lies of the enemy and the temptation of this world are there. And we know that sin, Lord, can callous us on the inside and make us hard, hardened towards you. But Lord, we know that our own heart, as you tell us, is wicked and deceitful and that we can't even know it ourselves. And so Lord, as we know that to be true, and sometimes we don't even understand or even realize that we've hardened our heart against you, um, I pray, God, that you, by your Holy Spirit and through your word, Lord, would, would search our hearts, as David even said, and know our hearts, Lord, and show us these, these areas, Lord, where we strayed away from you, where we resist you, where we harden our hearts against you and resolve, Lord, to not submit to your will. God, if we need to be disciplined, I pray, God, that you would discipline us, as painful as it may be, Lord. <clears throat> I know and we know, God, that your only desire is to do a work of good in us so that righteousness may be brought forth through our lives. Lord, we want to see your work. We don't want to harden our heart and close our eyes so that we, um, Lord, don't understand, like the children of Israel, what you're doing and we forget what you've done. For each one of us, God, you've done already mighty and awesome things. And we know, God, that you promise and give us a hope of still yet greater things to come. So, Father, as this world grows ever, ever darker around us, I pray, God, that you would strengthen us to, to be a light, to go forward, to speak the truth against the lies and the deceptions and the counterfeits that are out there today. Lord, give us courage, give us strength, give us boldness, knowing, God, that you've preordained us for such a time as this, that you've placed us upon this earth today, God, knowing what would take place and yet calling us to be a part of your plan and to walk in the good works that you've set before us. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you stand with us?